Hello, welcome back to Franklin Covey's newest weekly podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. I'm your host each week, and you may recognize me as the host of Franklin Covey's other podcast, On Leadership with Scott Miller, now the world's largest de dedicated podcast to the topic of leadership. And on this podcast, we have great conversations each week from people from different roles in the C-suite. Sometimes it's the CEO, CFO. Sometimes it's the chief technology officer or CHRO. And then oftentimes it's someone who kind of has the equivalent of that role, but inside their culture, they name it something different. And today is just such that person. I'm joined by Sharon Marcel. She is the managing director and senior partner and the North American chair for Boston Consulting Group, known to many of us as BCG. And she's here today to talk about all things consulting and passions in her own career. Sharon, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Hi, Scott. It's great to be here with you. Glad to have you here today, Sharon. We're going to take a lot of different routes today on your own career, topics you're passionate about, things that you've taken from the private sector and perhaps applied in the public sector. But first, I'd like to level set because BCG isn't a household name to perhaps small organizations or companies that may not be clients of yours. You're a large global organization. Would you talk about what the Boston Consulting Company does, how you're different, and maybe start with how you came to build what is almost, I think, a three-decade career inside of BCG? Just about three decades, Scott. You're right. Um, so BCG is a, is a truly global um, consultancy. Uh, we're based in North America, but but really have business all over the world. Um, we have roughly 25,000 employees, 8,000 of whom actually reside here in North America. And we help CEOs and, and, and public sector leaders and teams um, on their toughest challenges. And um, you know, in the economy we're in right now, there's a lot of tough challenges. And you're absolutely right, Scott. I've been at BCG now almost 30 years. I joined the firm in fall of, of 1993, um, started in the New York office, then moved to Washington and have had a number of roles across my career. Um, major role has been has been serving my clients and helping to develop my teams. And that's what I've loved the most. But I've also have the had the privilege of being our first head of the women's initiative, um, our, our leader of our consumer practice, first in North America and then globally. I was also asked by Rich Lesser, our then CEO, now chairman, to move into the public sector to turbocharge that practice, which I did in North America for a number of years, then moved into the CMO, Chief Marketing Officer position, the Chief Sales Officer position, which I did at, at, at the same time, and now have the, have the great privilege of serving as the chair of North America. You know, in many ways on a smaller scale, I've had a, a similar career to yours. My entire career at Franklin Covey, which is now 27 years, I spent the first 23 of it, leading sales and leading marketing as a sales managing director and then as the CMO. And then when I joined the executive team, I was the CMO for about eight years. And then I moved into the EVP of thought leadership, helping the firm shape its strategy, the firm shape its strategy. I'm guessing you have some unique points of view on how your decades in sales and marketing prepared you well to help lead the North American firm what experiences, maybe even specifically in sales and marketing, have made you a better leader of the company because of like rolling up your sleeves and knowing what the engines of the company, sales and marketing, where they succeed, where they fail? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I think um, you're absolutely right. Actually, every role I've had has prepared me for this role. And so one of the reasons this role is so fun, you know, if I think about sales and marketing, sometimes 
I refer to it as, as the air game, which is marketing and the ground game, which is sales. And both are super important in our business. And so, you know, if you think about sales, just like any company with a direct sales force and, you know, our, our partnership, which is, is, a, is a robust global partnership, is also our point of contact with our clients. And so in that way, you can, you can equate it to a sales force. But I think what's interesting is, as you think about sales, it, it's, about, it's about being front and center. It's about having the right topics that are on the client's mind. It's about having the conversations on those topics. It's about relationships and being able to empathize and understand where the client is coming from, their organization is coming from. It's about competitive intelligence and understanding what's happening in the sector or industry. And so all of those sales skills, which are applicable in, in more of the staff global role, um, are super applicable here and, and something I'm trying to drive in, in, in North America. Similarly, marketing, um, classic B2B marketing. And, and our marketing is a little bit different, I would say, than a, a typical industry in as much as a lot of our marketing is around ideas and, and impact. And so, you know, we have a lot of pieces, which is around driving change in organizations, whether it's operating model change, manufacturing change, um, change in technology, um, all of those types of change. And so using that, that those ideas and that marketing material to, to generate new thoughts and new innovations within our client is, is, is critical in terms of our air game. And so combining that all in, the, in a more pragmatic way in my North America role has been, has been a lot of fun. Uh, I, I see you very similar to a friend of ours, Ram Sharan, who's a very prolific author, a renowned coach to CEOs, literally flies around the world meeting every day with chair people, boards and, and, and CEOs. And you're doing similar. You're, you're, I'm guessing your point of entry in most companies is not only in the C-suite, like you said, in the chairman or CEO's office. Could you share with us what's on their mind? I mean, we're taping this right now in March. We're in the middle of all kinds of political geo issues with uh, you know, the Middle East and with China and Taiwan and with what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. We have this remarkably precarious banking thing going on, and hopefully it's been stemmed. Can you share with us kind of in real time, what are some of the types of conversations you're having as the head of BCG in the US with these CEOs? What are she and he worried about or excited about? Yeah, look, I mean, every Scott, everything you mentioned is very top of mind. Um, you know, also you put, put on top of that, there's not a CEO conversation that doesn't talk about the economy and, and about interest rates and inflation and factor costs, and then overlay that with, with some of the, um, the worker challenge and, and, and the shortages in, in terms of direct labor, direct labor and deskless labor, you know, like in factories and in, um, in restaurants, but also even, even middle management. So, so there's just layers upon layers of issues, but, but actually a lot of the CEOs I'm talking to are also they're, they're focused on getting all of that right and 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 making sure their cost structure is appropriate and appropriately variable, but they're also very focused on growth and margin and really thinking about winning in the in the medium term and what are their technology and AI requirements to win in the medium term, what do they need to do during this time of uncertainty to actually be like a great race car driver and, and when it's raining, actually gain competitive advantage and, and take market share. And so I had the privilege of actually talking to two CEOs yesterday, um, one here in Washington in person, one on Zoom. 
And they were both talking about both sets of issues, which is how do, how do we drive efficiency? How do we drive our cost structure? How do we make sure we have the absolute best people on the front line and, and in our headquarters? And how do we actually better innovate and, and innovate in a more um, forward-leaning and cost-effective way so that as we as we come out of this period of uncertainty, we make sure we, we gain competitive advantage? So I think it's, an, it's, it's a challenging time to be a CEO. I think it's a really exciting and rewarding time to be a CEO too. I want to uh, expand on something you mentioned about the labor shortage. And this may or may not be your expertise, but you talk with so many different industry leaders. I'd love to get your opinion on this. There is a labor shortage. You go into a restaurant and half the restaurant is closed off because there's not enough servers or not enough uh, cooks or food preparers. You go into yeah. a retailer like a Target and the lines are backed up in the self-checkout stand because only two lanes are open because they can't hire checkout um, yeah. uh, attendants. Where did all the people go? I mean, they didn't all, they're not still living on their stimulus checks. Is it a product of the fact that they've gone out and hire skilled and they've retooled their skills and they're working in higher jobs? Have they gone and d developed NFTs at Etsy stores? I mean, it seems like it's a pervasive issue across the world that that frontline worker that all of us yeah. started in our careers in some level, right? I worked in a restaurant in my teens and 20s. Do you have an opinion on where did that swath of people go and how are companies dealing with the fact that when you go to Target, 15 of the 17 aisles aren't staffed? There's, there's 20 people deep waiting to check out their stuff in their self-checkout stand. Yeah. It's, it's got, I mean, every, everything you just said is right. I, I actually started at, as a frontline worker, too. I started as a waitress in a restaurant. Well, hold um, on. Hold on. I love to hear that because I also think you went to undergrad at Duke and you did graduate I work did. at Harvard. And so there's yeah. hope for everyone that they also can become as successful as you are starting in the food service business. Absolutely. I loved it. I loved being a waitress. Um, working with people was a lot of fun. Um, the factors you cited are absolutely right. I actually think coming out of COVID, uh, uh, there were a number of people who decided... Um, to not re-enter the full-time workforce. And so many of those people are working part-time. Um, many of those people are working from home. Um, there's also an issue of demographics. And, and of course, that changes more slowly, but I, I don't think demographics are in our favor. And I'll, I'll just mention one other unfortunate trend that, um, that you know, I'm passionate about, which is our care economy. And if you, if you look at what happened during COVID, daycare centers closed. Not surprisingly, they had to close during COVID. And of the daycare centers that closed, almost a third have not reopened. And the reason they haven't reopened is lack of frontline workers to actually staff those daycare centers. Well, what happens is if your daycare center doesn't get staffed and you don't have affordable daycare, guess what? You can't go back to full-time work. And, and what we're seeing in terms of the care economy, which is a $6 trillion economy in North America, $2 trillion of which is paid care, $4 trillion, which is unpaid care, so BCG some research around the care economy, what we're seeing is um, many of those folks that are in the $4 trillion unpaid um, care are not able, they cannot get affordable care for their elderly parents or for their children, they're not able to go back to full-time work. And we actually quantified this and said by 2030, this is going to cost um, our economy $290 billion. So a lot more to be said on that. It's certainly not the only factor, but I think there's a lot of factor, factors that are all adding up to this, this labor shortage that we all feel um, every day in our lives. Let's take that one more step forward and we'll talk about some other topics. 
as you speak with CEOs, chief customer service officers, chief human resource officers, and you think about the employers that have frontline employees as well, that are fully staffed, they're not having difficulties, their staff is coming, they're staying, they're engaged, they're providing great service. What are the, what are the best doing that the ones that can't figure it out need to know? Yeah, well, it's interesting. The, the, the data, the, the stated and then implicit data. Of course, the stated data is it's around pay, it's around benefits, it's around hours, it's around flexibility. Okay, that's all the stated stuff. Then the implicit stuff. So if you, if you do um, deep consumer research and you get at the implicit reasons, flexibility, flexibility actually ladders up to does my boss care about me? Am I respected? Do you know, so there's a bunch of stuff on under. So the companies that are doing best, um, you you can see it in, in, in when you when you scrape fishbowl and you can see the data in in terms of their what we call net promoter score and how their employees are promoting them or not. And we do this research and we you know for for our clients and and for their competitors and we look and we see how are you doing for factory workers versus your competitors? How are you doing for frontline retail workers versus your competitors? What are some of the themes that we're seeing? And, and of, of course, things like pay matter um, and benefits, but, but really importantly, how you make people feel really matters. And of course, you know this, Scott, but it's not about having signs that say, you know, we respect the individual. It's about the actions and how that shows up in terms of the frontline supervisors and what people are incented to do. And you know, again, we could talk a lot more about that, but that is that is what BCG is seeing in our data. You mentioned that promoter score. I was talking with Fred Reichel just a few days ago. We've had him on our program several times. And he, as he enters kind of the, the crescendo of his life and work, of course, you know, Fred is, is, the, is the, the science, if you will, the scientist behind that promoter score. And he's kind of obsessed with building cultures internally building leaders internally that understand about vulnerability and empathy and communication and caring about their employees. That, you know, this human resource adage that people don't quit their jobs, they quit their bosses and their cultures. And we see this over and over and over again. And they stay when they feel cared about and heard and seen and respected from their, from their leaders. I, I set that up because when we opened this conversation, you mentioned deliberately that one of the roles that you do and love is building great teams. Talk about what that means to you. Kind of bring that down a couple of 10,000 feet. Practically, yeah. I'm guessing you're going to say it means building people with complementary talents that shore up yours. When you are building your team, what's your criteria in terms of both the hard skills and what are now often referred to as the power skills, the people yeah. skills, the soft skills? Talk about what it means to you to build a great team. Yeah. So maybe, maybe I'll go and I'll start and then I'll take a little bit of a right turn. So um, I, I had a client who was always delivered. You know, he was, I was brand new partner and I would, I was working for him and he was terrific and just highly, highly capable. And, um, and, and I, I said to him, like, how do you always deliver so well? And he said, I surround myself with people that are entirely better than me. And I, I thought that was great advice, which is, you know, as you assemble your team, you know, look for people that, that are, you know, just superstar performers and are committed and and all of that look I, I i joined bcg i was recruited in by a woman named sandy moose who became a mentor and sandy ran the new york office and at that time 
it was rare in 1993 to have a woman who was the head of a major office. And so Sandy for me was, was a role model and a mentor and someone I looked up to and, and, you know, I, I felt like I could see it, I could be it. And, you know, that's often said, but, but in BCG, New York, it was true. Um, and then I was lucky enough to have another of a, a number of other mentors along the way, people who coached me, they cared about me. I had an assigned Mickey, uh, mentor named Miki Tosaka, who now is running Microsoft Japan. She moved to Japan many years later. Um, and then I had mentors like Steve Gumby, who helped me in terms of my um, understanding really how to work effectively with clients and deliver value. And then Rich Lesser, who, who, who mentored me, he was our ex-CEO, now our chairman, who was my mentor in the sense that he, he put me in different leadership roles, whether it was the consumer role or um, you know, the public sector role or the marketing role, he trusted me and, and pushed me in many, many, many ways. And so I start there because I didn't invent mentorship at PCG. I think mentorship is key to our culture and grow by growing others is, is one of our biggest and, and most powerful um, purpose uh, pillars, grow by growing others. And at every step along the way in our career, whether you're a project leader or a principal or a senior MDP like me, you are evaluated on how you grow by growing others and, and the teams that you build and how you empower them to do more. And so I was privileged to have great mentors. I think our culture fosters the notion of mentorship. And you know, I think the other, other thing which is, has been cool over time is that you know, when I joined BCG, it was a shop where we got great people out of great undergraduate institutions in great business schools, we still do that. But actually we have enormous diversity in, in terms of who we um, recruit into BCG today. So whether it's data scientists or it's ex-government people who are helping to come into our government practice, or whether it's it's people who have who, spent their entire career in the supply chain. We, we have a, a variety. So thinking about teaming and thinking about grow by growing others and we have a, an enormous amount of diversity in, in terms of our teams. And I think that benefits BCG and it benefits our clients enormously. Beautifully said. I wanna come back to your passion around mentorship in a moment, but I wanna rewind. You said something I think is profound and it's a topic that I am violently in agreement with. And that is, I actually believe after 30 years in a leadership development firm, also having led many people well and not so well, that I don't think a leader's number one job is mission, vision, and values, or systems and strategies. They're very important, you have to do them. I actually think, and I'm maybe a bit of a pariah, that a leader's top job is to recruit and retain people. And recruit and retain people who are noticeably, palpably more talented than you are, and to have the, the confidence in your, in your contribution that first and foremost, you're a talent magnet, and that you feel confident enough to go out and hire people who will eclipse your knowledge about certain things. And I'll tell you, it's Liz Wiseman, the author of the book Multipliers, that had a massive maturation and how I viewed this. I think it's the best leadership book ever written, Multipliers. But she, she, she validates exactly what you're saying, is having the courage and the humility to attract and retain people who are noticeably smarter than you are. I appreciate you articulating it so beautifully. Now, back to mentoring. About a year ago, HarperCollins, came to me and asked me to write a book on mentoring. 
clearly they came to you first and you declined because they actually accepted my proposal. And I'm in fact writing a book on mentoring coming out in July. But I'd like to ask you two questions before I move to the public private sector point. Um, answer this question as I'm asking it, if you will. And I'm gonna ask you the opposite in a moment. Great mentors do what? I think great mentors um, are able to listen and to stand in your shoes, mm. but then offer a variety of, of perspectives, not just one perspective, but seeing things from a number of yeah. different angles. I think great mentors can do that. I love your answer because the premise of my book is that as a mentor, you can never say, well, if I was you or I were you, well, you're not them. You have to understand that they have different passions and fears and joys and the things like that. So. Uh, one point for you, one point for me. Okay, now, next, like 400 points for you and one point for me. I'm not the leader of BCG. Uh, mentors shouldn't do what? Mentors should do what? Mentors no, no, should... shouldn't. What should they not do? Oh. Like, what are the boundaries? What should mentors not do? I think mentors shouldn't be directive. On occasion, mm -hmm. a mentor can be directive if you're trying to protect someone, their health, or, you know, but mentors, yeah. um, I think at their best, tee up the right questions and, and are able to frame different points of view. I think only 5% of the time should they be directive. And that 5% of the time is, is when, when you feel that your colleague may be at risk because they're doing something that would inhibit their health or, or doing something that, that could be, you know, too reckless. Yes. Then, then I think it could be directive, but other than that, I, th I think directiveness is not helpful. Oh, I think you might like my book. <laughs> okay, uh, here's a question. One of, the, one of the unique passions and competencies that BCG brings, brings to their clients, especially their public sector clients, government clients, is all the innovation, the agility, the nimbleness that comes from the private sector. Can yes. you talk about how you perhaps uniquely bring all of the innovation and the genius that you learn from your private sector clients into your public sector clients? And maybe is there an example? Is there an example of how a, a government or a, a, a municipality is serving their constituents better because of how you and your team at BCG is bringing the wealth of knowledge, the R&D, in the private sector and applying it into the services that all of us receive on the public side? Yeah. Um, so BCG has, has a bit of a unique model um, in terms of how we serve the public sector. So we serve the public sector with truly integrated teams. So we have people like, I'll mention Danny Werfel, good friend of mine, who we recruited over from government. He had had his full career was in government, and now he's actually gone back to be the commissioner of the IRS. He just he just left BCG to join um, the Biden administration as the commissioner of the IRS. I mentioned Danny because we have people like Danny on our team who've spent a career in government. But then we also complement that with our, our private sector people. Okay, so I have I have history in terms deep history in terms of the private sector, but many 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 of our other partners and colleagues who serve our public sector serve the private sector and the public sector, and we work in integrated teams. And so I'll give you one example of of how that can pay off. During COVID, we were asked um, to support um, this the the supply chain initiative, yeah. um, and you know, so we went into HHS and we worked with HHS and we worked on what we called them the lighthouse. And the lighthouse was actually an AI enabled way of actually tracking 
a lot of the um, medical supplies that were needed to bring to bear. Um, and, and so we combined our, our knowledge of you know, how the supply chain works in, in terms of medical products with, um, you know, with, our, with our knowledge in, in, in terms of the med tech sector, with our knowledge in terms of payer providers, and our government knowledge to actually stand up this AI lighthouse to help in terms of the navigation distribution of, of medical equipment. So that's one example of how we supported, in this case, the federal government um, in, in terms of helping American people. We did similar things with state and local government around vaccine education, vaccine distribution. Again, you know, combining you know, what we do for our private sector clients and, and, and taking that over to the public sector. Thank you. Generally, I, 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 uh, I appreciate that work because I think we all benefit. Those who chose to vaccinate, even those who didn't, benefited from those who did. Because here we are two years later living a fairly back-to-normal life. And at the height of the pandemic, I would drive around Salt Lake City as a ghost town wondering, will we ever go back to work? Will there be restaurants open again? I can remember thinking, how long will this last? Will it be 10 years or five years? I, it's so interesting. So thank you for your work on that. Okay, I want to give you a little bit of a twist question. Uh, it's a good ambush, and then we'll end. You strike me, obviously, as a, as a person that has enormous intellectual capacity. You're extremely well-educated. You've earned all of your accolades, and you have access to a arguably unprecedented level of uh, partners, clients, and you are well-schooled and spoken on many issues. What's your weakness? Like, what's a topic that you don't know anything about and you're really curious about it and you want to learn more? You talked about supply chain and AI and all kinds. Of, is there a topic that you say, you know what, I know nothing about this and I need to learn this because this could help me be a better leader or a better partner to my clients? You know, it's interesting. There's so many topics I, I want to learn more about and I feel I, I know so little about. Um, you know, Every time I'm, I'm part of a of a of a leadership conversation, or I'm part of a con this conversation. You know, I'm I'm learning a lot of different things. I mean, I think I think I understand how BCG deploys AI, and I understand how that actually helps our clients, and I've seen that in action many 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 times. But sort of two levels down on that, um, I would love to understand that better in terms of the mechanics of it and and how that works. Um, I am at my heart um, a nerd. And uh, and and so you know I, I love understanding kind of the overall perspective, the global perspective, and but um, but when I have the time, I, I will dive into it and, and learn you know three three layers down how it all how it all works. Did I hear you say you needed a great book on mentorship? I think you said I that. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I'm looking forward to your book, Scott. I'm looking forward to your book. The I'm ultimate guide to great mentorship by Scott Miller coming out in July. Anyway. Uh, Sharon, you've been a delight. Thank you for your uh, contribution to all of those. If nothing less, I do think it's really great to hear people's journeys. I mean, you, like me, of, our, of a similar generation, I'm probably a little bit older than you are, it's rare, it's a, really rare to have someone that spent nearly three decades in the same organization. I think obviously speaks to your interest and commitment to the firm. It speaks to the culture of the firm, a great place to work. You wouldn't stay if it wasn't great. 25 years myself plus at Franklin Covey, we're more of the outliers now. Can you finish this conversation with what is BCG doing to not just recruit, but to retain? Because I, I don't know if the best thing is everybody stays for 30 years, right. but what are you doing as, as the leader to make sure it's a place where people, if they do have the option because their skills are relevant and they're inventing themselves or reinventing, 
What are you doing to make sure that careers look more like that and less like the average of 18 months? Yeah, no, I think it's an important question. And look, we, we have grown, I mean, BCG's grown 15% per year for the last 20 years. So in order to grow 15% per year, you have to retain a lot of people. Now, of course, our model also is we graduate a lot of great alumni. And so some people choose to leave and, and we're super supportive of people who choose to leave to go to our clients or, or to do, do startups. And, you know, my goal is just to make the the BCG career exceptional and, you know, exceptional if you choose to stay for two years, exceptional if you stu if you choose to stay, you know, for 20 years. And, and how do you do that? Well, you do that through learning and development on the job, learning and development. Of course, there's there's classroom learning and development, but it's really on the job, learning and development, mentorship, stretch assignments, impact. If you can deliver, if people feel like they're they're stretched, they're delivering impact to their clients, they are actually learning and developing as people and they're cared for. I think I think that's it. And and I'm not saying we always deliver on that every day, but our aspiration is is to deliver on that every day. Sharon Marcel, managing director, senior partner and leader for BCG in North America. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Scott. It was great. It was great getting to know you. Same. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-suite.